0: Abandon all remote controls, ye who enter here. It's time to unlock the gates to telehell. It used to be that halftime at a football game was as plain and as simple as having a local high school or college marching band parade on the field for a few minutes to give us a nearly off-key version of Louie Louie. And for good reason, too. People tuned into a football game to watch a football game, and that's it. But then, in 1993, the game in between the game changed forever, when who else but the King of Pop pretty much told everybody watching that night that there was more to football than just the game. Ever since that moment, the halftime show at both football and television's biggest event has seen its fair share of stars trying to keep the audience entertained for approximately 20 minutes. This is the list of halftime headliners since 1998. See if you notice where it all goes horribly, horribly wrong. Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, Phil Collins, Aerosmith with Britney Spears, U2, Sting, Paul McCartney, The Rolling Stones, Prince, Tom Petty, Bruce Springsteen, The Who, The Black Eyed Peas, Madonna, Beyonce, Bruno Mars. You're not going to miss anything. If he gets hit with a boom mic or something, it'll be in all the papers. And for the most part, they and several other performers since that particular clip have either managed to keep the audience from changing the channel at the half or get a refill on the snacks, depending on who's performing that year. And considering that both J-Lo and Shakira are on hand this year for the halftime show, the male demographic is all but certain to be entertained by both performers, even with the volume on mute. Which by no natural segue whatsoever brings us to this one question. How quickly do you think it takes for a change to come along and alter everything you've ever known? More often than not, it takes the blink of an eye. Or in the case of today's subject, approximately 0.78 seconds. That's how long it took for an estimated audience of almost 140 million people to collectively ask themselves, was that what I thought it was? That's right folks, we're going there today. What is said to be the single most viewed, most talked about, most analyzed moment in all of television, sports, and entertainment history. And we hope that 16 years after the fact, this subject is never brought up again. Or at the very least, brought up again here in TeleHell. In order to understand how and why the world's most infamous fabric rip wound up taking place, we must first go back to the beginning. No, 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 that's a little too far back. Uh, still too far back, but at least we're getting a little more relevant. Come on, don't focus on the acting stuff, stick to the music. Okay, okay, getting warmer. There it is, right there. Janet Jackson's Rhythm Nation tour of 1990. In the late 80s and early 90s, Miss Jackson was able to carve a name for herself in spite of her infamously famous family, and one of her brothers in particular. Sure, she could have easily used Michael's name and then goodwill to achieve her fame, But Miss Jackson, back in the day, was the epitome of an independent woman who was able to succeed without resorting to nepotism. Because of this, she was able to land at the top of the charts thanks to her first two albums, 1986's Control and 1990's Rhythm Nation 1814, the latter of which had an especially profound impact on a nine-year-old boy from the greater Memphis, Tennessee area who happened to attend one of Miss Jackson's concerts in 1990, that little boy's name was one Justin Randall Timberlake, who was so enthralled by the performance he witnessed that night, that he decided right then and there to become a performer. One thing led to another, and young Timberlake suddenly found himself in the spotlight in 1992, when he appeared as a contestant on Star Search, otherwise known as the proto-American idol of the day. The challenger was discovered at WHBQ Channel 13, an open call in Memphis from Millington, Tennessee, welcome 11-year-old, Justin Randall. Call my doctor on the telephone. Tell me, doctor, wrong. I keep shaking, I've gone too far. They tell me what But before you imagine a horrific alternate timeline where JT is doing an impassioned duet with Toby Keith at the president's inauguration... Young Timberlake was able to parlay his star search success into something where the fuse for his career truly started to burn brightly. As he, along with virtual unknowns named J.C. Chazé, Ryan Gosling, Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears, and future co star of the Clerk sitcom pilot, Kerry Russell, was cast to be one of the members of the 1990s Mickey Mouse Club. Who's the From there, JT teamed up with a bunch of other kids his age to become a boy band, blah, 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 blah. We're not here to talk about success. We all know that Timberlake would become a bigger star than all of them put together. Even if he wound up doing country music like he did in the Star Search clip, he would still be one of the biggest stars in the world partly because even back then, you knew he had the charisma to pretty much win over an audience, even if some of that audience had its fair share of jaded, cynical individuals who thought they knew better about what was entertaining or not. But I digress. Meanwhile, as one star was on the rise... Miss Jackson's career remains steady, strong, and evergreen, with more hit albums under her belt, as well as a return to acting by appearing in the underappreciated Poetic Justice opposite Tupac Shakur, as well as the sequel to Eddie Murphy's Nutty Professor, all the while doing the best that she could to shake off the stigma that her infamous family, particularly Michael, had given the tabloids something to feast on for what seemed like forever. But again, we're not here to give a well-crafted biography of a great performer. You're wondering how the nip-slip of the century wound up happening. We're getting there, we promise. In 2002, the hive mind at the NF- Ah, crap. I almost forgot. Once again, this is going to be one of those shows where we need to tread lightly when it comes to how we use branded football terminology. We can't mention the name of the league. We can't mention the name of the event being presented. And all that we ask of you is that you bear with us. However, because the event in question happens to be a non-football entertainment-related one that the league technically did not produce, we can, at the very least, feature the event without issue. With that said, in 2002, the benevolent football gods decided that Miss Jackson, fresh off the success of her long-running Velvet Rope Tour, would be named the main headliner at 2002's Big Game Halftime Show. Or at least, that was the original plan. In light of the September 11th attacks, the football people decided to put Jackson's halftime performance on hold in favor of performers who would help galvanize the country. So, out was Miss Jackson, and in came U2. And to the credit of everybody else involved, at least they made the right choice there. No disrespect to Miss Jackson, but when the country gets attacked, the last thing people would want to hear is the singer of 1996's Runaway. In light of that, the football people still wanted Miss Jackson to perform, and both parties eventually agreed to move the performance up to two years later, when Miss Jackson was scheduled to release her new album. On that note, ladies and gentle demons, it's time for another one of those lessons in corporate lingo that you're going to need to understand for better context in this story, for it's because of this one particular element that helps the stars align for what happens later. With that in mind, let's talk a little about Corporate Synergy! synergy is a byproduct of that other piece of lingo that we taught you a few weeks ago. Acquisition. Simply put, whenever a company buys out another company, the one that buys it out becomes the lesser entity's parent. And as such, it's up to the parent to lead the lesser version of itself in a way that helps benefit both parties. For example, whenever Disney needs something to promote, they're never too eager to do that kind of promotion on any of its other platforms. Whether it be through their various TV networks, cable properties, publications, retail stores, you name it, the parent company is able to use all the resources they have at their disposal to help get the message across. Which would probably help explain why even the most mediocre of movies wind up clearing over a billion dollars in sales. In the case of Janet Jackson and football's biggest game, the players involved are slightly different. In 2004, the game would be aired on the CBS television network. Also in 2004, the network got in bed for the first time with an up-and-coming media conglomerate known as... Yes, Viacom. The media monolith that, as of 2004, owned CBS, Paramount Pictures, The Showtime Network, Simon & Schuster Publishing, Westinghouse Broadcasting, BET Networks, and perhaps the most important figure in this story, MTV. (laughs) So because CBS was practically in bed with all of these figures, in particular the subsidiary that, whether you like it or not, still had some sort of grip of control when it came to the hip music that's popular with the kids today, the football people commissioned MTV to be the producers of 2004's halftime show, along with the added bonus of it being an election year when this would air, meaning that in addition to producing the show, MTV would also use its own variant of corporate synergy to use the venue to convince the potential audience of young people watching that night to get out and vote thanks to the network's choose-or-lose campaign. Because after all, when you think of football and flashy performances, you immediately think of the Iowa caucus, right? At either rate, regardless of the synergy involved, the halftime show was in the process of being planned. Miss Jackson was already tapped to be the main headliner. But as the network itself once said in some of its advertising during the 80s... "...Yeah, too much is never enough." So the network hired the likes of P. Diddy, rapper Nelly, and Kid Rock to not only assist, but also act as the highest-budgeted game of one of these things is not like the other ever orchestrated. Fortunately for the sake of this story... Those three figures are practically non-entities because only one other name on this lineup really mattered. As the story goes, the working relationship that Jackson and Timberlake had up to that point had been akin to a teacher and her student. Which stands to reason because during her Velvet Rope tour in the late 90s, Jackson was so impressed with up-and-coming boy band NSYNC that she had selected the band to be her opening act for a majority of her tour. Because of the continued camaraderie between her and the band, the band went on to become one of the most successful groups at the turn of the century. The admiration between both Jackson and Timberlake was as much professional as it was mutual. War. An admiration that would continue into JT's budding solo career when he asked Jackson to lay down some guest backing vocals on his solo debut album, Justified. An album that would become so much of a hit in 2003, that MTV realized that the halftime show they'd be producing would have to have a cherry on top. And thanks to how well Jackson and Timberlake worked together in the past, it was decided that Timberlake would join Jackson as her quote-unquote surprise special guest at the event. Where? Now that everything was in place, there was still the matter of what exactly would be happening during halftime itself. Which, even the most novice of football fans know, is often considered to be one of the most guarded secrets in all of showbiz, and is never to be revealed until the events take place live on the air. The 2004 halftime show was no exception, but little did the audience at home or in the stadium know what they were about to be in for. And we'll find out what happened together. After the break... (coughs) Word! Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk and the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, what makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son? And what was my answer? I must have said something, right? February 1st, 2004. The war in Iraq was about to hit its first year with no end in sight. The presidential primaries were well underway, with John Kerry beating expected favorite Howard Dean. Ah! And at approximately 8 p.m., 7 p.m. Houston, Texas time, where that year's big game was taking place, while New England was well on its way to becoming a football dynasty by leading an unwitting Carolina team by four points at the half a different kind of on-field entertainment was about to take place. We begin with a silhouetted figure dancing inside what looks like a mosquito net. The dancing figure was Miss Jackson as she was performing the opening bars of her recent hit, All For You, which in any other context is probably one of her more underappreciated hits. Naturally, the crowd goes wild. At this point in the proceedings, she's wearing her soon-to-be-infamous leather bustier. But little is said about the flowing white blouse that she's wearing on top of it, one that sort of makes her look like Jerry Seinfeld in the puffy shirt. You're gonna be the first pirate, (laughs) but I don't want to be a pirate! The only difference there is that Miss Jackson is actually pulling it off. But once again, I digress. From there, we get to a mini-performance of the all-time classic Rhythm Nation. Gone is the puffy shirt, and on comes more leather. And once again, the crowd goes from wild to nuts. But then again, who wouldn't overhearing any music artist's greatest hits repertoire? Four minutes into the performance, JT shows up. Where? And with apologies to comedian Christopher Titus, the crowd goes from nuts to... We the jury find the defendant levels of insane as JT begins his signature, Rock Your Body. Oh. And for approximately one minute and 20 seconds, all seem to have been going well. And for a moment, let's put those 80 seconds of innocence in perspective. That's approximately the time it takes to make a grilled cheese sandwich. The overall clip of the halftime show on YouTube measures at about 5 minutes and 40 seconds, or enough time to cook three grilled cheeses, or to cook a pot of soft-boiled eggs. We wanted to mention those specific statistics because of what's about to happen next, as well as the notion that time can be a fleeting thing in certain circumstances. That being said, we should all know what happens next by now. JT reaches the end of his verse, Promising to have Miss Jackson naked by the end of this song. And sure enough, the scene immediately cuts to an overhead shot of the stadium in Houston. But by then, the damage was done. Miss Jackson's breast clad with a metallic sun-shaped shield akin to a Chinese throwing star, had just been exposed to an audience of roughly two-thirds of America, to say nothing of how large the worldwide audience watching would be, possibly nearing the billions. And were this another point in time, sure, the incident would be talked about for years to come, but it would eventually become a footnote in time, not unlike the Heidi game. Unlike the Heidi game, however, the end product of the incident happening would become far more impactful. Backlash from the nip slip began almost immediately, as MTV and CBS apologized for the incident and asserted that they had no prior knowledge that Jackson and Timberlake's duet would involve partial nudity. And then the finger-pointing truly began. Some MTV executives blamed Jackson for orchestrating the incident as a potential publicity stunt for her then-upcoming new album, Demita Joe. while other MTV representatives were willing to fall on their own swords, as long as they maintained that the nudity was never intended. Jackson's representative explained the incident, saying, quote, Justin was supposed to pull away the rubber bustier to reveal a red lace bra. The garment collapsed, and her breast was accidentally revealed. End quote thus leading to the coining of an expression that has long since stood the test of time… Wardrobe malfunction. Before things truly came to a head, however, Jackson ultimately issued a video apology over the incident at the request of CBS. My decision to uh, change the Super Bowl performance was actually made after the final rehearsal. MTV. CBS had no knowledge of this whatsoever, and unfortunately, the whole thing went wrong in the end. I am really sorry if I offended anyone, that was truly not my intention." To further cement her stance, as well as attempting to deflect some of the blame that she was getting, Jackson further commented on the incident in a subsequent edition of the USA Today newspaper stating, quote, it's truly embarrassing for me to know that between 90 and 140 million people saw my breast, and then to see it blown up on the internet the size of a computer screen. But there are much worse things in the world, and for this to be such a focus, I don't understand, end quote. Jackson had strong, if guarded, views on the reaction, saying that the Fuhrer was, quote, hypocritical with everything you see on TV. There are far more important things to focus on than a woman's body part, which is a beautiful thing. There's war, famine, homelessness, AIDS, etc. The fact that it happened in an election year did have a great deal to do with it. They needed something to focus on instead of the war. And I was the perfect vehicle for that. People are going to think what they want. It was an accident. It was not a stunt. That was embarrassing for me to have all those people see my breast. That's like having your penis hanging out in front of millions and millions of people." Jackson declared the reaction to the accidental exposure as contradictory, noting it to occur in an era where commercials for beer and sexual dysfunction drugs are both very sexual and practically omnipresent. Jackson also said the mishap was a costume accident, not unlike a wardrobe malfunction. In Glamour magazine, Jackson exclaimed, "quote It's hard to believe that there's a war and famine going on in the world and blah 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 blah. We get it. She's being pegged as a distraction in lieu of endless war that was going on. We kind of get that point there." Surprisingly, the one person involved in the incident who wound up smelling like a rose when all was said and done turned out to be the guy responsible for ripping off the fabric in the first place. Where? Timberlake released a statement of his own a few days after the incident, saying, quote, "I'm sorry that anyone was offended by the wardrobe malfunction during the halftime performance. It was not intentional, and it is regrettable End quote." Timberlake also addressed the incident at the Grammy Awards the following week, saying, quote, "I know this has been a rough week on everybody. What occurred was unintentional, completely regrettable, and I apologize if you guys are offended but all the apologies in the world from all the parties involved were nothing compared to the legal action that resulted from the greatest advertisement for nipple brooches known to mankind. Won't somebody please think of the children? The socially conservative media watchdog group, Parents Television Council, or PTC, issued a statement condemning the halftime show, announcing that their members would file indecency complaints with the FCC. In addition, the FCC received over 500,000 complaints from Americans, with the PTC claiming responsibility for about 11% of them, the day immediately following the game. Then-FCC Chairman Michael Powell ordered an investigation into the halftime show, despite the fact that while a majority of Americans were indeed offended by the incident, pursuing legal action may have been overkill. But pursue they did citing the fact that the FCC had pretty much been lying dormant for many decades. The halftime incident would prove to be the push in the right direction that the organization needed in order to feel useful again. The incident triggered a rash of fines that the FCC levied soon after the game, alleging that the context of the wardrobe malfunction was intended to, quote, pander, titillate, and shock those watching, end quote, because it happened within the lyrics of Timberlake's performance of Rock Your Body. In addition, the FCC cited a news article on MTV's website claiming that the halftime show would promise quote-unquote, shocking moments, and that officials of both CBS and MTV were well aware of the overall sexual nature of the performance, and fully sanctioned it, indeed touting it as shocking to attract potential viewers. CBS, however, argued that the exposure was unplanned. Although in later statements, the network asserted that while the exposure was unplanned by CBS, it was deliberately planned by Timberlake and Jackson independently and clandestinely on September 22, 2004. The FCC fined Viacom the maximum penalty of $27,500 for each of the 20 CBS-owned television stations that it had, for a fine totaling $550,000, the largest ever placed against a television broadcaster at that time. Although saying this out loud, and realizing that all parties involved were multi-billion dollar companies, the fines were less of a punitive blow to the companies and more of a principled blow to their egos. One that would eventually be overturned in numerous district courts years later for reasons that we would love to get into, except we're not a show about the legal system. Granted, we do have plenty of lawyers at our disposal here in the underworld, but we kinda want to keep things on task. So. Where does this literal flash of a flashing get body rocked in telehell? Let's see as we cry ourselves a river sticks onto our nine circles. Word. Limbo, lust, lust gluttony, greed, wrath, wrath heresy, violence, violence fraud, fraud, treachery. As far as the incident itself goes, when happening live, to say that it invoked a lot of wrath from the viewing audience and the FCC would probably be one of the more obvious foregone conclusions ever broadcast to say nothing of the fact that the split second where the nipple was seen by the public invoked two kinds of flashes. One of the physical, but also one of the psychological as thoughts of lust wound up getting invoked, particularly by the large male audience that was watching. (coughs) However, the after effects of the incident turned out to have the bigger impact, starting with MTV getting punished for being responsible for the incident happening in the first place, accidental or otherwise, by never being allowed to produce a big game halftime show ever again a promise that has remained kept for 16 years and counting. Whether they meant to or not, they were still remotely responsible for committing a double-teaming of fraud and treachery against the football people for not warning them ahead of time that such a stunt, again, accidental or otherwise, would even be taking place. Additional charges of attempted heresy also took place when, in view of the incident, the halftime show's main sponsor, America Online, tried to sue to get a refund of the estimated $7.5 million that it put up in order to put on the show due to the outrage and potential damage to the sponsor's brand, thanks to being involved in the production. Unfortunately, that heresy gets revoked and instead replaced with the greed circle, on account of the fact that they not only didn't get their money back, but that they were foolish in thinking that such a gambit would actually work in the heat of an ongoing mass hysteria over a famous person's nipple. Meanwhile, the incident also gave the FCC the resolve to further increase its grip on the viewing and, in other unrelated cases, listening public, resulting in the record fines and fees being incurred not only by CBS, but thanks to the collateral damage involved. Other broadcasters who were known for pushing the envelope started feeling the heat for no other reason than to be made an example of, which I guess could be considered a blessing in disguise, because were it not for this incident happening, Howard Stern would never have made the jump to satellite radio. Take the good with the bad, I guess. The 2004 halftime wardrobe malfunction earns five out of nine circles of telehell. The incident is considered to be the most controversial television and media event to occur within pop culture, and perennially makes the top of various lists of TV moments that are either considered most shocking, most controversial, or uses any other superlative expressing pearl-clutching. To put things in perspective, the former website Girl, spelt G-U-R-L dot claimed, quote, Despite her wardrobe malfunction, for which we think Justin Timberlake wasn't punished nearly as severely for, Janet put on a pretty amazing show, end quote. Jackson's parents, who, by the way, is another can of worms for another day, also expressed concern that Timberlake did not stand by Janet following the incident, commenting, quote, What I didn't like was that there wasn't one person on stage. There were two people. After a while, there was only Janet Jackson. That's all there was. Janet Jackson. Janet didn't pull that thing open herself. He did it. We were surprised that they didn't say anything to Justin about it. End quote. Eventually, time would heal all wounds, and Timberlake would be eventually given a second chance, being invited back for another halftime show when he was named the headlining act in 2018. Where? During that performance, Timberlake, again, sang a portion of Rock Your Body but stopped right before reaching the climactic line about getting naked at the end of this song. Some commentators interpreted this as a subtle reference to the 2004 incident. Then again, that performance was also meant to plug his ill-fated Man of the Woods album. So perhaps Timberlake wound up facing some long-delayed karma after all. Word. Ultimately, the incident also set a record for being the most watched, recorded, and replayed moment on TiVo. Remember that thing? A company representative stated, quote, The audience measurement guys have never seen anything like it. The reaction charts look like an EKG. As we also mentioned, the incident coined the phrase wardrobe malfunction, which was later officially added to the Webster's English Dictionary in 2008. And perhaps one of the more bizarre impacts of the incident, USA Today reporting that jewelry stores and piercing studios were seeing increased customer interest in silver sunburst-shaped nipple shields takes different strokes to make different folks, I guess. While the incident has remained firmly planted into the minds of those who saw it live and those who saw it during round-the-clock news coverage, there hasn't been anything close to that moment ever happening again, at least as of this recording. As a result, 99% of live TV events now have a permanent delay set just in case something like this ever happens again. And with the exception of a few fleeting expletives that are sometimes bleeped out, Very little has happened since 2004. Which raises the question, did Jackson really deserve all the scorn that she wound up getting? Media commentators stated that Jackson was treated too harshly by the media and the public, while Timberlake's career was not affected that much by the incident. Ten years after the incident, former FCC Chairman Michael Powell gave his first interview regarding Jackson's performance, saying that Jackson was treated unfairly and that the controversy, including his own reaction, was completely overblown. Powell goes on to say, quote, I think we've been removed from this long enough for me to tell you that I had to put my best version of outrage on that I could put on. Part of it was surreal. I think it was dumb to happen, and they knew the rules and were flirting with them. My job was to enforce the rules, but really, this is a what are we gonna do situation. end quote. Powell also said that the treatment of Jackson, who was lambasted for causing an outrageous stunt, was unfair, and commented on Timberlake not receiving the same backlash, saying quote, "I personally thought that was really unfair. It all turned into being about her. In reality, if you slow the thing down, it's Justin ripping off her breastplate. end quote. Most importantly, even though it took Janet Jackson a while for her to rid herself of the backlash once and for all, she eventually did. Not only is Jackson still making music, but she was also able to return to acting by appearing in several Tyler Perry productions. And she also made headlines once again when, at the age of 50, Jackson had her first child. Simply put, the world kept on spinning, and life went on as usual. And when asked by Oprah Winfrey in 2006 to put the entire incident in perspective, Miss Jackson had the last word. Do you think in any way that uh, Justin Timberlake left you hanging out there? I think they were. I think they did put all the emphasis mm-hmm. on me and, uh, as opposed to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, just to, to let people know that Justin has reached out, We haven't spoken, but Mm -hmm. has reached out to speak with me. And like I said, friendship is very important to me. And certain things you just don't do to friends. And um, in my own time, in my own time, I'll give him a call. So when you say certain things you just don't do to friends, do you think him ripping the whole thing off? Is that what you're talking about? No, no, no. When you had said, uh, uh, certain things were said, supposedly, or that he had said Uh um, during that whole fiasco. Uh, I had heard, Mm -hmm. and kind of leaving you out there hanging. So you do feel that he left you hanging? Uh, To a certain degree, yeah. Okay. Next time on Telehel, we go from a story about an infamous boob to a story about a completely different kind of boob, just in time for the Oscars. Oh, good evening, Mr. Archer. It is so exciting to be here tonight. I'm a little late though. Can you tell me how to get into the theater? And before you jump down my throat, not necessarily her per se, but rather the person responsible for making it happen in the first place. Until then. If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. Of course, the usual ways, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and our website, telehel.libsyn.com. but also these new places, including castbox.fm, podtail.com, listennotes.com, mytuner-radio.com, and blueberry, which is spelled B-U-L-B-R-R-Y.com. We'll have many more coming soon. And as always, don't forget to like... Comment, rate, subscribe, and share on our social feeds. Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. Where?